So tonight we are going to talk about Jesus in the kingdom of God. Um, we've talked in subsequent we- in previous weeks about building this foundation of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, what the faith that was given to the saints, that was given to God's people once for all time really is. And certainly in no sermon series can we capture that as a whole, but the idea here is that we lay down sort of a basic foundation of understanding this is what's distinct about us. This is what we believe and how we live and how we practice. And uh, this is ultimately, this is all built around this understanding of what does it mean to live like the kingdom of God is real. So we're going to start that tonight. We'll talk about Jesus for the next two weeks, and I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. But when Jesus begins what we tend to identify as his sort of public, deliberate ministry and mission, this is how he introduces himself and his work. Now, after John, John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Before I talk about what I think is behind this, I want to show you one other possible interpretation of his call to repent. you think he can fly? Here he comes. Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you, I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Um, Philip, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. Frank, you know what you did. I just can't repeat it because I'm Jesus. All right, all you sinners, come with me. It's time to pay the piper. Man, it was only one cigarette. I heard that. Look at all these sinners. All right, listen up. Listen to me. I'm Jesus. Listen to what I have to say. I have done many wonderful things. I have healed many people of diseases. I have performed many miracles so that I can tell you this. You're all evil. There is no hope. That's it. Thank you. 
that makes you a little uncomfortable, it should. Uh, and the reason it should make you uncomfortable, because you have some sense of who Jesus is and what his life, what he's like and what his mission is, and this isn't it. This is a satire of a poor understanding of who Jesus is. And just for the record, some of you find it funny because you, like, satire is something that you find fun. Some of you may actually be offended by me showing that. And I'll, I'll tell you in just a minute, there's a specific reason, not just because it's funny, though it's always okay to have a little comic relief, but there's a specific reason I want that image of Jesus on the screen for us as we move forward tonight. It has a little bite, I think, that particular portrayal of Jesus because Jesus actually did kick things off in his ministry by saying, the kingdom of God has come near, repent. One of the first things he says about God, about following him, about the good news, is you need to repent. And I think our understanding of what he means when he says repent is sometimes probably a little too close to what we just saw in the way that he sees people as all you sinners and he's going around and just picking apart the little things that everybody has done wrong. We hear Jesus say, repent, and whether we want to admit it or not, I think often we, we hear something like what we just saw on the screen. We immediately think, well, Jesus came and said that he knows all my sins and he's telling me that I should stop sinning. And that becomes too strongly, that becomes our frame of reference for who Jesus was and what he's up to. And while both of those pieces are true enough, Jesus sees you, God sees you, <laughs> no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, and he doesn't want you to continue choosing something other than God's best, so he doesn't want you to keep sinning. That's an impoverished, a really narrow way of understanding what's really at the heart and the mission of Jesus. And so I want to be sure that as we encounter these words, we get a better understanding of where he was and what he was doing and why he was saying what he was saying and what it, what it means for us. Because that question kind of looms out there for us. Is that why he was really here? Has he primarily come into that moment that he came into, that time in history? Has he primarily hung around and put himself in our lives so that he, can say, he could say to all of them and he could say to all of us, I'm here to point out that you're a sinner and help you stop sinning. Is that the primary mission and identity of Jesus? I don't think that's the primary message, even as he says from the outside, repent, outset, repent and believe. I think there's much more to what he's saying and what he's doing. So what I want to do tonight is give us a little bit of two things I want to do. I want to give us a little bit of context in, in a little bit more detail than what I did last week. I tried to give us kind of the story of God and people in the world leading up to this moment when Jesus comes on the scene. Tonight, I want to go into just a, a tad bit more detail as to what, that cre what setting that creates that Jesus actually walks into. I get excited about this. I get excited about us looking at the actual history, looking at what was actually ha happening in that time and place. I know not everybody gets as excited about that as I do, but I want you to understand the importance of the context. If we're going to make a real effort to stay tethered to the faith that was handed down once for all time, that means there is a singular identity to that faith that hasn't changed over time. 
And it is rooted not just in a set of beliefs that have been repeated time and time again from one generation to another where we say, this is what you should believe about God, this is what you should believe about Jesus. That faith handed down once for all time is rooted in something that actually happened. It's rooted in real historical events. God didn't, we don't have this, if, if you start listing out the distinct things that we believe about as Christians, we don't have them because kind of similar to the Ten Commandments, God gave a New Testament Ten Commandments and said, here are the ten core doctrines that Christians should have. Now we have the scriptures that God breathed out, that God gave to us to help guide us into right belief and right living and right practice. But the scriptures are not, I don't know if you've read them lately, but they're letters and poems and things like that. They are not a written out, it's not a written out doctrinal statement. Our beliefs are rooted in not just one thing that really happened, and that's most of us have a pretty good handle on the history of, say, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But the crucifixion of Jesus has meaning because of what happened in the life of Jesus before he was put on a cross. And it matters that we understand that. It matters that you understand that and you're not just completely leaning in to someone else's understanding who then tells you, here's what you should believe as a Christian. And here's one of the main reasons it matters. It matters that you are rooted because if you're not rooted, if all you have is you've been told and convinced, here's a good thing to believe as a Christian, and then someone else comes along and says, hang on a second, here's a better thing to believe as a Christian. If this new thing sounds better and you haven't rooted the first thing, you have nothing to access to decide, is this new thing better or not? Why not just grab the new thing if it sounds better? It's important that we understand where our beliefs come from. And it's especially important when we start talking about Jesus, we understand who he was and what he did as a real person who lived on the earth. And so it's, it matters um, that we have the why we believe and not just the what we believe. So here's kind of an overarching statement for the night. Understanding what Jesus meant in the time and place he said these words, the words that I just read you, is crucial to understanding who he is and what he's doing and what it has to do with us in our lives. That's kind of my thesis for tonight, why I want to talk about Jesus in the way that I want to talk about Jesus tonight. So as we move through this overall project to put together a solid, if sort of basic, understanding of what the scriptures call the faith which was once and for all given to God's people, we're going to spend two Sundays on Jesus, today and next Sunday. And this week, I want to look at his historical arrival in a particular time and place where he introduced himself, and as you saw, introduced the kingdom of God as he described it, and as he would live it. Um, because that faith that we're talking about stands on this belief. It stands on, the, our faith stands on the belief that Jesus came into public space saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Next week, just so you kind of know how it all fits together, we'll look specifically at what his arrival, his message, and his mission mean about our salvation and about our rescue, both individually and as his church and as his world, his people that he's created. 
But I want to talk, like I said, about some history because, because so much, I think, of what many of us, it was true for me for a lot of years, so much of what I got in my belief about Jesus was not all that rooted in context. It was a lot, at least before I got a lot of context, I got, here are some things you should believe about Jesus as it relates to your soul. And I, I didn't know why that was true. Uh, and so I, I want us uh, to be sure that we don't just have that, that we also get, here's who Jesus was and what he said and what he did in real time and space. Okay? So here, just uh, to set the table for that a little bit, here are what I think are some of the dangers for us in not knowing this context, um, why it's important for us to, to have some of this context. If we don't know the context of Jesus' life and the, where he lived and how he lived and how he spoke and who he was among, it's easy for us to abstract Jesus. And that means we just take things to believe from him and we put his name on them. And that won't work in the gospel because the gospel is specific about incarnation. It's about God becoming flesh and being a human and living in a time and space. It's not just about abstract beliefs. The fundamental heart of the gospel is that God came and lived among us. And if he did, what happened then and there matters. And so we can't just take the abstract version of that. We can also narrow Jesus down. You see tons of this, people who want to narrow him down to the parts of him, the parts of belief that suit them and their way of living or their way of thinking. And if we're not rooted in who Jesus was, it becomes very easy to do this. We can also do the opposite. We can sort of generalize him as some broad idea, some sort of broad figure, but miss the, the details that are crucial to his identity in the gospel. We all know people who do this. We all see people who we know don't put their hands on sort of the heart of the gospel where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, but they like Jesus. And they think, yeah, we should sort of take this figure or this idea of Jesus and generalize his philosophy. And if we're not rooted in history, it's easy to do that. And it's easy to manipulate him. It's easy to just sort of reshape him in our image if we aren't grounded in what he really did, okay? So here's some historical context. Let me just tell you this. If you're somebody who takes notes, I've put quite a bit on the screen here as I do this next little bit. It's really not that long, what I'm about to do but there will be a lot on the screen. I almost took it out because I don't want to overwhelm anybody. Don't try to write all this down. If it feels important to you to have all this information, it will be on the internet tonight or tomorrow. The slides will be on the website, okay? So don't try to just, just listen and because I, what I want you to see here is the big picture. I want you to see the big story that unfolds here as we talk about sort of the historical context where Jesus came, okay? We could do weeks on the history, weeks on the, on the context. Last week, I sketched out kind of the story that he's born into, but let's look at how all of that kind of came together at this moment of Jesus' arrival so we better understand what kind of people he was born into and was speaking to, okay? So here's some things we know about Jesus. Jesus was born a Jew. He was born into that, and that matters because he was born into that story that, we talk, that I told you last week of God's selected people being offered rescue, taking hold of it, then losing their grip on it, then rebelling against God, and that cycle in and out of that cycle and their weariness with that cycle of exile and oppression. And Jesus is born into that people. 
He's not just a random guy who was born. He was born into that particular story. And that particular story, Jewish life at that time, was rooted in a story that had some particular markers. There were some particular ways of, of identifying these people and their story. And Scott McKnight is a biblical scholar who, who I like his four markers. He, he identifies that those people at that time had a strong ethnic identity. They had a strong sense that they, were, they, they had a purpose as a people, that they were giving birth to children who had a purpose that was uniquely connected to God's purpose in the world. They also were people, I talked about this last week, who had a strong uh, sense that land mattered, that God had given them a place, a space in the earth. And occupying that space was, for them, part of being close to God because it was God's gift to them. It was where they dwelled with him. They were a people who followed the Torah, the scriptures, as they had them at that point. They, were, they felt very strongly that those spelled out how they should live and who they were supposed to be as a people. And they were a people to whom the temple really mattered because that's where God said, I'm going to come and literally be in your space in the temple. So this is the people that Jesus was born into. They were marked by these understandings of the world. And they were also marked by an overriding story that had played itself out in their lives. And this is kind of the story I told you last week. God, Yahweh, was their creator, that he had made them, that he had made them in their image. This, this Greek word icon means that, they, that humans were created in the image, uniquely given the image of God. The story goes on and the icons are cracked. That image of God is broken in people because of sin and rebellion. God wants to restore his image. He wants to restore order to the earth. This is all part of their expectation, their story. They're given a covenant through starting with Abraham and, and moving on uh, from Abraham to Moses and David and on through the people that God would give them as a people their land, that he would be with them in the temple, that he would make them a nation, that he would bless the world through them. So they live with this idea of covenant constantly. They also know in their consciousness that they haven't been faithful to their part of the, co of the covenant, that they've lived in and out of exile and captivity largely because of their own choices. And then they believe that God will come for them, that despite all those centuries of that history, that God is relentless in his, in his mission of restoration. And this is what Jesus is born into. And this is what he begins to speak to. Um, this is kind of the common story. They're waiting for God to come and for him to once and for all fulfill his mission and establish his kingdom in the world, to free them from that cycle of exile and captivity for good and to make everything right. So a lot of the things that we still believe are coming in Jesus, they already believed. This was already part of their identity and their story, and it's what Jesus is stepping into and speaking to. So he arrives, and he essentially says, guess what? It's happening. It's finally happening. It's happening now. God is fulfilling his mission. He's establishing his kingdom right here in the world, and he's going to free you. He's going to free his people from exile and from captivity once and for all, and he's going to make everything right. And this is essentially what Jesus says, and he says, so to all of you who have been waiting for that and hoping for that, I have two things to say to you. Repent. Repent change the way that you're living and believe that all of that is coming through me, that God's kingdom is coming to its fullness, 
through me. We'll look at a few different translations of the way he says this, a few different versions of the scriptures. One says, it's time. The kingdom of God is near. Seek forgiveness. Change your actions and believe this good news. The message says, time's up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the message. Another says, the time has come at last. The kingdom of God has arrived. You must change your hearts and minds and believe the good news. This is what Jesus is saying as he's speaking into that particularly Jewish context of hope and exhaustion and weariness and readiness to be delivered. These are the ideas that he is articulating. Things have to change, but good news. If you will change from that way of living to this, you're gonna discover that the kingdom of God is here. It's not something that you have to keep waiting on. So this is the message of Jesus as he begins his ministry. Repent, change, believe that God's kingdom is coming through me. And I think these are two things that it's important for us to have some understanding of so that our view and our beliefs about Jesus are based on what he really said and did and why he really said it and did it, okay? So I think it begs two questions. One question is what is he calling them to repent of? What does he really mean if he doesn't mean, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind the rock and you fell asleep in church uh, and you said something that I can't repeat because I'm Jesus, you did something I can't repeat. If that's not what he means, if that's not his primary drive when he's calling for repentance, what, what is? Then the second thing, second question is, what does he mean that the kingdom of God is coming near through him? What particular good news about the kingdom is he asking them and us to believe? Um, I'm going to address those two questions, not comprehensively, but with some major themes and understand that uh, addressing these come from working through the life and the history of Jesus, not just from this initial statement that we have from him in Mark 1, but how does he follow that up? Because he, he starts by saying, repent, believe, and then he lives three years and teaches and does miracles, and he shows them, this is what I mean by changing the way that you live. This is what I'm telling you to turn from. This is what I'm telling you to turn to. And this is what I mean when I say the kingdom of God is near. Watch, listen, I'm going to describe it. I'm going to show it to you. So what is he calling them in the context of what he, he demonstrates over the course of his ministry? What is he calling them to repent of? And so these are just kind of some major themes of his call to repentance for the people of his time and place that I think also... Uh, are relevant to us now. One of the things he clearly is calling them to repent of is their tendency to bow to worldly powers. Um, he, at, at one point when he's asked about this relationship, specifically about paying taxes and the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man, he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God, God's. It's clear that when Jesus looks at God's people, he's seeing a people who are, instead of giving the state what is the state's and God what is God's. They are confusing God's authority and the authority of men. It's clear in more than one place that he sees God's people confusing those things. And he makes the suggestion that more is being given to the powers and the principalities of the world than is due them. And that 
people, not only is he, it's not just a matter of, I don't like that because it's idolatry, because you're giving away something that's mine to a government or to some other power, but he's seeing his people tie up their hope for rescue in the accumulation of worldly power, in the desire to get close to the throne or even get seated on the throne. And he's saying, repent of that. You're not going to find rescue when you accumulate enough power, when you get close enough to the worldly powers. It's not where it's coming from. He's also calling them to repent of moral confusion and rebellion. Most of, this is, the church obviously spends a lot of time on this conversation right now, and it's understandable. There's a lot of sort of chaos and confusion and disagreement in the culture about morality, about what's right and what's wrong and how we're supposed to live in lots of different areas. And it's not wrong for the church to care about those things. There's a lot of skirmishing going on that, that it's interesting to me how, mu- how many of the arguments about morality somehow get untethered from the way that Jesus spoke to these issues. I hear regularly on, on more than one significant moral question that we're dealing with in the culture, well, Jesus never addressed that, and I just, most of the time, it's just wrong. If you look at the way that Jesus talked and lived and the way that he connected himself to this story that we're describing, and you understand what God has been saying from the outset of this story about morality and how God made us to live, Jesus is constantly speaking to it. And he's constantly looking at his people and saying, you have detached yourself from how you were created. Repent of that and see how God means for humans to live. He's also calling them to repentance for their disputes among God's people. This is a constant theme in the scriptures. It's a theme in the life of Jesus. He sees God's church disunified. One of the most powerful passages of scripture for me is John 17, where Jesus prays that God's people, that the church, that the people that God has called together, that he has extended the covenant promise of Abraham to, would be one. And that when they are one, the world will see and know that I am who I say I am. He's calling his people to turn away from all of the disputes and even in his prayer to the Father, identifying that when that happens, evangelism is easy. That people will see in the unity of God's people truth and validity to Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. He's also calling religious leaders with mixed motives and mixed loyalties, including loyalties to money and power. To repentance. He's, his message to the religious leaders of that day, and I believe to this day, to stop your infatuation with power and popularity and money cannot be disputed, and the fact that it has become ignored in the Christian culture is one of the most mind-bending and awful parts of the Christian culture as far as I'm concerned. The message of Jesus is clear to those who claim nearness to God, and certainly to those who claim to lead others in nearness of God. Repent from your mixed, mo- your, your mixed motives and loyalties. And then another thing that it may seem like a misfit to you, it may seem like a misfit to us in the, in the culture that we've been raised in church-wise, but it is relentless in Jesus' message, is a call to repentance from God's people being allowed to live neglected in poverty. 
He says a lot about money. He says a lot about keeping our money. He says a lot about knowing that there are people who don't have basic things that they need and us not dealing with it. And he calls the church, his people, not the church yet at that point, but his people to repentance. And this, what you see here, these themes, this is kind of the condition. It's the state of Israel after their centuries of that cycle that I described this week and tonight. When Jesus arrives, this is where they are, and this is what he's calling them out of. The call to repentance from him is relatively simple. He's saying, this is not God's way. This is not what the kingdom of God is going to look like. So if you want the kingdom, you're going to have to leave this behind. I'm inviting you into God's way, which is breaking into the world once and for all, but you have to decide whether you're ready to let go of the way that you're familiar with, the way that you're comfortable with, and embrace the kingdom instead. And remember, as he says this, that these people are desperate to be free from exile and from captivity. But he looks at them and says, even if you're out of the control, even if you're back in your land and you're not governed by other people, but this is how you're living, is this really freedom from exile and captivity? Are you really free in the kingdom of God? And there's this resounding no that hangs in the air. And Jesus says, so you can, you can keep going that way or you can change your way and believe this good news. Another way is here. Come with me and find it. And so that's the second question before we wrap up is this. What does he mean the kingdom of God is coming near through him? And I'll do an abbreviated version of this because next week we'll go a long way toward answering this question. What particular good news about the kingdom is he inviting them to believe? Isaiah, uh, and if you're, if you're reading the N.T. Wright book, I pulled this from there, but Isaiah, when he describes the coming of God, God's kingdom, he describes a time when God's promises and God's purposes would be fulfilled. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here or near, He's saying the time when God's promises and purposes will be fulfilled is arriving. He's saying Israel, God's people, will be rescued from their oppression, from their exiles, from their captivities, from being ruled over people who don't know God or who are forbidding them from worshiping God. That's coming to an end. He's saying that evil will be judged. God will once and for all deal with what is truly wrong and evil in the world. And he's saying that God will usher in a new reign of justice and peace. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, he's saying all of this is coming. And here's the kicker. It's coming through me. He was reaching into their collective story and saying, this is the time and I'm the one. He's saying the prophecies are being fulfilled. Israel is going to be rescued. Though he makes it clear, and this is an important point to remember as we move to next week, that God is also reconstituting Israel. And it's no longer going to be just an ethnic people, but it's going to be a people who God is raising up from those who say yes when I say repent and believe, who choose the kingdom of God when it's set in front of them. He's saying God is going to break the power, any true power that any oppressors will have over his people, God's going to break. And he's saying God is coming in to this present with God's future. That he's, he is bringing about a time when justice and beauty will consume 
injustice and ugliness. He is coming to heal the fractures between God and humanity. He is coming to, to lay waste to, to the divisions between humans and other humans. And most of all, in that time and place, he was saying, God is fulfilling his covenant with our father Abraham that you've been living and waiting for him to fulfill all this time. God is fulfilling that covenant. Believe it. Come be a part of what was promised to you long ago. And that message, this message, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, believe the good news is for us too. Because the state of Israel was reconstituted, it's for us too. It's for all who would say, yes, I'll turn from living by my own kingdom and the kingdoms of men to receive the kingdom of God. You are invited into that original covenant that God made with Abraham. God has seen you from the start. He made you. You have lived like his people always have in your own cycle of promise and hope and then exile and captivity. But Jesus has come into the world and set into motion the ultimate answer to that cycle, the true fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. And Jesus has said, now is the time. God's kingdom is coming through me. Come and see it. Come and receive it. Repent and believe the good news that God's promise for Abraham is for you, not, not just for you in the context in which Jesus spoke it, though it's true, and it's important for us to see that context, but for you. God's promise is for you, that he will be your God, and you will be his people. He will bless you, and he will bless the world through you. And that's because of Jesus arriving and saying, everything's changed. Come and join me and receive the kingdom of God. Let's pray.